The text of this morning's sermon is Galatians 3, verses 19 through 22. Galatians 3, 19 through 22. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's pray. Father, I ask that Uh, Now you would help us, uh, give us eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Uh, Father, that you would uh, not only help us to understand what the text means, but that it would pierce down into our heart and into our soul, Lord, that it would change us. God, I pray that you might be pleased to bring someone from death to life this morning. And Father, I pray that you would cause all the Christians here to worship you in light of this text. Uh, We're wholly dependent on you, Lord, for good to come this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why the law? Are laws good things? Do we want laws? You know, I hear, I see people nodding. Yeah, laws are good things. We see a need for laws. Do you, okay, let's say you're driving down the highway and all of a sudden there's lights behind you and I ask you the question, are laws good things? Do you like the law? At that, at that moment, you might be a little more hesitant. As long as the law is doing what it's supposed to do out there, we're happy. Anyone who's a fisherman or a hunter never sees the game warden walking towards them and going, praise God for the law. <laughs> Even if they're not doing something that they know is wrong, Let's just be honest. We're afraid that somewhere we're probably screwing up, even if we don't know it. The law shows us clear boundaries that potentially shows us where we fail. This morning, we're going to consider the question about why the law. Uh, if you remember last week, we started looking at Paul's argument. Now, let's just remember, Paul's writing a letter to the Galatian uh, church, the, the church in Galatia. There's new believers that when Paul preached the gospel, people believed were saved and received the Spirit of God. And then after that, Judaizers came in and said, 
you can't just trust by faith in Christ, Gentiles. You need to be circumcised and live under the law. You need to add the law to your faith. Paul has already argued, I publicly preached Christ, portrayed Him like on a stage. Like when a play is taking place on a stage and everyone's watching, Jesus Christ was at the center for you to see Him. You trusted in Him. You believed in Him. Are you now going to push Christ off the stage? Maybe you'll leave Him up there but back in the back corner and now bring the law in. That's the question that Paul has been asking. And last week we saw how the Abrahamic covenant, the promise to Abraham, is a better covenant than the Mosaic covenant, the promise to Moses. God gave the law to Moses, made a covenant, a law covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. And He made a personal covenant to Abraham that was a one-way covenant. God just promised this is going to happen and Abraham just believed. It wasn't contingent on Abraham working. We saw that it's an unchangeable covenant. If human covenants can't be changed, then how can this covenant be changed? The Abrahamic covenant that ultimately points towards Christ. Remember his argument? God made a promise to Abraham that through his offspring, singular, the nations would be blessed through Christ. So he's saying Christ has already come. The fulfillment of the promise that guarantees the inheritance to everyone who trusts by faith in God's grace in Christ. It's already been given. Are you now going to go back to the law? We saw last week that it's an unsurpassable covenant. It can't be annulled. The Abrahamic covenant came first. The Mosaic covenant came next. It doesn't annul it. You can't add it to it. It's an unaccommodating covenant. It's not as though God said, I'm giving you the covenant of grace in two installments. You get the promise of salvation by faith through the Abrahamic covenant, and then you add on the law. See, this is what the Judaizers were saying. You're missing half the scenario they're saying. In fact, it seemed like they were even emphasizing the Mosaic law over the Abrahamic covenant. So, last week we looked at the Abrahamic covenant. This week we're going to look at the Mosaic covenant. And we're going to see how the Mosaic covenant is lower. If you were going to put adjectives on it, or explain the two, the Abrahamic covenant has primacy, priority, precedence, preeminence, superiority, supremacy. The Mosaic Covenant is lower, supporting, lesser, minor, subsidiary, subservient, auxiliary. It's a different type of covenant. 
So what we're going to see, or the question we're going to ask is the question Paul knew everyone would ask at this point. So there's one God, and if the Abrahamic covenant is so good and so much better than the Mosaic covenant, why the Mosaic covenant? Why do you do it then? If the Abrahamic covenant is the one that is so supreme, why did he even give the law in the first place? It's a good question. And he begins to answer it in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. So what does this mean? God gave the law. It was added because of transgressions. John MacArthur says that the New English Bible captures this text better than uh, any other translation. And here's what it says. Why then the law? To make wrongdoing a legal offense. The law came to make the wrongdoing a legal offense. You see, mankind knew they were sinful before the law came. They knew that because their conscience, the law written on their heart, convicted them, told them it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to commit adultery, it's wrong to steal. It's wrong to worship other gods. There's a sense where the conscience lets us know that we're sinful. But what the law does is the law comes and goes, shows you who God is, what God's standards are, and the transgression just expands all that much more. I confessed a few sermons ago how this past hunting season I did have a run-in with the game warden. And my friend who came from Minnesota that I was going to hunt with had left his license in Minnesota, arrived here, and we couldn't get another tag until a game warden would call us, call us back. And we didn't want to lose a whole day of hunting, so we went out and hunted anyways. It was sin. It was wrong. We knew what we were doing, so we thought. You see, we thought we broke the law in this one area. What we didn't know is that the Sand Lake Hunting Refuge, or the Sand Lake Refuge, that season actually opened two days later (laughs) than what we thought. So our transgressions were growing as we came into contact with the law. I started realizing that I'm on federal land breaking federal laws, which is different than breaking state laws. I came into contact with the law and my jaw began to drop even more as I realized my offense. When God gave the law through Moses, our sin increased. Here's what John MacArthur says. What man needed to know was that such sinning 
was an absolute violation to the very law of God Almighty. In other words, he needed to see himself not just as a bad guy, but as somebody who was standing under the bar of a holy God, guilty for his sin and doomed to judgment. The law came to show man that, yeah, you know you're a sinner, but you have no clue what that means. That your Creator, the Holy God, is the one whom you're offending. You're not just telling a little white lie. You're offending your Creator. Your Judge. The one you will face one day. This is all throughout the New Testament. In Romans 3, starting in verse 18, Paul, in the first three chapters of Romans, he's like a prosecuting attorney on God's behalf. And he's taking the law and he's prosecuting all mankind. Before he shows them a Savior, he first shows them, according to the law, who they are. At the culmination of his final argument, he says this. He says, here's why they did all these wicked things. Because there was no fear of God before their eyes. The reason why you sin and I sin is because we have an awe problem. We have a fear problem. We have a faith problem. We tend to not believe that God is who He says He is. And that He's actually there when no one else is watching. See, that's a faith problem. It's an awe problem if we do know He's there and we don't tremble. You see, that's why we sin. There's no fear of God before us. But then it says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. There's the purpose of the law. To have every man go, We want to justify ourselves, but the law shuts us up as it shows us our sin. For he goes on to say, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Why the law? Because of transgressions. Because of Sin. Listen to Romans 5.20. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law came to help you greater see your sin. Listen to Romans 7.7. 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet unless the law said, do not covet. And then in verse 13 of Romans 7, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. 
The reason why the law kills you is because you have sin in you. It judges you. You see, the law is good and it kills. God gives the law the sword because man is sinful. So he says, it was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You know, if you went to the doctor and were suspecting, maybe you're having headaches, you're worried about a brain tumor, and you go get a CAT scan, and if the CAT scan came back and said, yes, you do in fact have a brain tumor, one of the things you could say is, well, do you got a bad machine? Well, no, in fact, the machine is good. You got a bad tumor in your brain. The law is good. It's God's righteous standard. But you want to know something? No tumor is healed by going, getting a CAT scan. The CAT scan can't do anything except be a picture to reveal what's actually there. To expose the problem. So, Paul argues in Romans that, yeah, the, the law is good, but it exposes that which is not good. It's interesting, a guy named Andrew Jukes makes this statement. Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law which God gave to prove us sinners. Satan is happy for to take God's law and come to people and say, do this. The way you're going to be saved is by doing this. Satan doesn't have to bring his own law. He, he finds no displeasure in grabbing God's law and saying, here you go. Meet the law. Do the law. But that is not why God gave the law. He did not give the law so that we could be saved by the law. Rather, He gave the law so that we would die under the law. That we would lose all hope under the law. That we would realize our horrible circumstance under the law. In Hebrews 4.12, here's how God's Word is described like a mirror in a sense. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. You see, a surgeon can have a really sharp blade and cut into your body and get down even with robotics to very minute places. But the Word of God is like a two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit. That's something the doctor's tool can't get to. Joints and marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him whom we must give an account. 
see the exposing nature of the law. God gave the law so that when you looked into it, you would see yourself naked before God. All the way down to your thoughts, even your intentions, the words that you would never say, God's Word comes in and cuts down deep, even to that level to expose man. The law is good in the sense that there's nothing wrong with it, but it exposes what's wrong in us. I want the policemen out on the streets keeping the roads safe, but if I'm speeding, I don't want one behind me. That's kind of our relationship to the law, right? For lawbreakers, we kind of have a love-hate relationship with the law. Secondly, notice, see the temporary nature of the law. Look at the second part of verse 19. So, why then the law? It's been added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So this law is given to Israel temporarily until offspring comes. We just saw that that offspring was Jesus Christ. The people of Israel were under the reign of the law. It ruled over them. Every time they went and gave a blood sacrifice, they were reminded they needed to give the blood sacrifice because of the law that was over top of them. That it reigned over them. It was like a harsh ruler that was good for them in restraining sin some, but are, are, are even for society to see and restrain sin, but really it makes sin increase because it exposes what's actually inside of us. And so we see that the law is temporary. We talked about this a lot last week, so we'll leave it at that. The Mosaic Covenant is not an eternal covenant as the Judaizers thought it was. It had purpose. It was for the reason of because there was transgressions, God gave the law, but it's only until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So his argument for this church is you don't put push the cross off the stage and set up the law. It was temporary until Christ. That cross sustained center stage for all eternity in heaven. The songs we know that are going to be sung in heaven are about the blood and about the cross. It's never taking back seat to anything. The third thing we see is the impersonal nature of the law. Look at what it says. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So when God gave the law to Israel, it came through mediators. It came through angels and it came through Moses. And God said, here's the deal. 
get the people of God and get them away from this mountain. And Moses, you come here and I'm going to meet with you on this mountain through mediators. God mediates the law through angels. It's kind of mysterious. The Bible uh, says a few things about it. this. Uh, Deuteronomy 33.2 and he, and he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Serapanis. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came, he came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire in His right hand. And then in Psalm 68.17 says this, the chariots of God are twice ten thousands Thousands upon thousands, the Lord is among them. Sinai is now the sanctuary. In the New Testament, Acts 7.53, we read this, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So this law was mediated by God through mediators. Through angels and through Moses. And the point here is that this mediation shows that it's not as great as the Abrahamic covenant. Because when God came to make a covenant with Abraham, He came personally. And He didn't say, get away from here! He called Abraham His friend. So God comes personally in the Abrahamic covenant in love, in promise, in blessing. See, this feels a little different than get them out of here. Go over here. Now there's going to be a mediator between me and you. The Abrahamic covenant is better. God shows up and talks to Abraham three times. Three guys show up at Abraham's door. He doesn't know who they are. He finds out one of them's God. God was there mediating. You see, the greatest covenant God has, He doesn't send angels. He doesn't send Moses. He brings it. He tenderly comes and says, here's how you're going to be saved, friend. The Mosaic covenant is lesser, we can know, because of how it's mediated to the people. Verse 20, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. (laughs) I had to laugh when uh, I was listening to MacArthur on this (laughs) and and I saw this in some other commentaries. So there's evidently 430 different translations of, I mean, not translations, interpretations of this verse. Whenever there's that many different interpretations of a verse, it's a difficult verse to interpret. And so MacArthur says, don't worry, I'm only going to share with you 273 of those. (laughs) No, but in true MacArthur fashion, what he did then is he says, this is what I think it means. And it seemed convincing (laughs) to me. So let's work through this. Now an intermediary implies more than one. If you're going to have a mediator, you got to have two parties. You got to have this party and this party for someone to stand in the middle. 
That word means literally in the middle. You can't get in the middle of one. So, in to have mediation, you need to be more than one. An intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. The point seems to be this. When God came to Abraham, God made the promise to Himself. God did not say, Abraham, here's the deal. You keep your end of the bargain and I'll keep my end of the bargain. That was the Mosaic Law. Let's just admit, we're all in trouble if we have to keep the Mosaic Law, aren't we? Because if God keeps His end, that means we're dead. Because we don't keep our end. But what makes the Abrahamic covenant better is that God made a promise within the Godhead. And I was talking uh, to someone last week and, and explaining to me how when that covenant was cut, when the animals were pushed uh, one to each side and it was put on a side hill of a mountain, a person would walk through that covenant and are, are those animals and blood would get on the robe of the first one, blood would get on the robe of the second one, and it was evidenced, it was a picture saying, this blood on our robes, it will be what happens if you break the covenant. And Abraham did not walk through those animals, but there was a lamp, there's a smoking fire pot and a lampstand. And, and some think that pictures God and Christ go, going through that covenant. There can't be a mediator between God. It's a one-way promise. That's good news for us because He keeps His promises and we don't. So we see the impersonal nature of the law, but the personal nature of our covenant, the covenant given to Abraham fulfilled in Christ. Fourth, see the executionary nature of the law. So I sat there for 20 minutes trying to figure out what word to use. Executionary isn't a word, but I think you can get the idea of what it means. The law by nature holds a sword. You see, in Romans 13, when God gave the law, the civil law, to the authorities and not to the church, He handed them the sword. And he says, bring about justice. When you need to use this thing, use this thing. But he didn't give the sword to the church. He gave it to the civil government. He gave the church the gospel. And so Christianity doesn't move forth by the sword, but through good news. By reminding people of the Abrahamic promise fulfilled in Christ, that a person is not saved by works, but by faith in the promises of God. By faith in Christ in His death and resurrection. The very nature of the law is that it kills. Listen to some of these verses. Romans 7.9 I was once alive apart from the law, but when the law came, sin came alive and I died. Come into contact with the law, 
as a sinner, you die. Romans 8, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 is one of the most precious verses in the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. You see, Jesus Christ, when He was born under the law as the New Testament tells us, we're given a hint. He's born under the law. The law has the sword. And when your sins and my sins were put on Jesus, there's only one fate left. Death. Blood to be shed. Jesus was born under the law so that you and I no longer have to live under the curse of the law. He died the death we were supposed to die. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 3. I just want you to see this. 2 Corinthians 3.3 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. He's saying not of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul's saying, I'm a minister of a new covenant. It's not like the old covenant. It's not the letter. It's not in the letter of the law, but in the letter of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on a stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which had been brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Here's what he's saying. If Moses went up and got the law from God and his face came back shining, how much more will those who are in Abraham see an eternal glory so much greater than that of what Moses saw. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the, minister, in the ministry of condemnation, that's the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. This law that used to be on center stage has now been pushed off as the glory of Christ has come in the power of the Spirit. At once had the glory, the glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. 
For if what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Do you see it? Do you see how the Abrahamic covenant is far superior? To leave Christ and add the law is no hope. Two more texts. Hebrews 4.12. I already read this, but I want to read more verses. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature, that means you, is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed before the eyes of Him by whom we must give account. Here's the next verses. Praise God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. In light of how the law exposes us, since we have a merciful and great high priest, let's hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw with confidence, or let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's how Paul tells gives it to Timothy. He says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You see, the promise began before you were ever born. Your salvation, the salvation of the elect, never had anything to do with your works. It always had to do with the God who makes promises and keeps His promises. Let me read it one more time. Not because of works, because, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. I just want to end with letting this sink in. Through Jesus Christ, He brought he abolished death and brought life and immortality. How many of you like the fact that you're dying? That your body's wearing out? It's a reality. In Jesus Christ, you're promised immortality. His resurrection is your resurrection and you need Christ. And I lied, I'm not done because there's point five, but it's a quick one. It summarizes all that we've been saying. Look at verse 22. 
but the Scripture, that's the law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who, what does it say? Believe. Here's the purpose of the law. The purpose came to make you lose all hope in and of yourself. To think that God's going to let you into heaven because you're good enough. You won't get there. Look at the law. The law is meant to chase you to the cross. To chase you to Jesus Christ. The best news in the world is that salvation comes to sinners not because they're good enough, but because they believe God is faithful to His promise. His promise to save us in Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus went on the cross and your sins were put on Him, God grabbed the sword of His justice and He slayed Jesus on the cross. That's offensive to a lot of people. The cross has always been offensive to the Jews and to the Gentiles. It was offensive. But the good news is this, is God loved you so much that He made a one-way covenant where He sends His Son. When Jesus is on the cross, God takes your sins, puts it on Jesus. God crushes Jesus for your sins so that you and I would never have to live under the law, but could live under grace, the almighty love of God, so that God can come to us as God came to Abraham and say, I'm your friend in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the law. Thank You that we can know how bad we are so that we can join rejoice all that much more in Christ. Father, I pray that our love for You would grow, that we would find You as our only hope and treasure, that we would see how silly chasing after this world is, that we would believe Your words, Lord. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Lord, never let us buy in to such a stupid thing. Help us, Lord, take serious our soul and turn to Christ and believe in Him by faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.